Today's podcast looks at the scandals that are kind of getting away. No, not the Michael Matheson and his laptop scandal, because that one's going to be with us till the end of time, thanks to opposition parties that think questioning him on that, or at least Hamza Youssef, is more important than trying to investigate the possible closure of Grangemouth. But let's just look at Westminster for a second. Matt Hancock and Michael Gove are currently being questioned by the National Crime Agency over crony contracts given to Michelle Moon. Hearing about it much? Not really. James Cleverly, the uh, the home uh, the, the home secretary. Which of the many scandals surrounding him do we really want to focus on? The immigration total, the fact he thinks Stockton is a shithole or the fact that he hasn't actually paid his council tax. He's landed that with the taxpayer to pay. You could go on and on, and yet we hear so little of this. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And uh, I'm sitting here, you know, smug, cosy, in the wee back bedroom, the radiator on, uh, nice and warm, in my own little house, unlike some folk who had to travel when it was Baltic on uh, public transport to get themselves to Dunoon. It's you I'm speaking about, Ms. Riddick. Oh, yes, yes. Although I thought, you know, <laughs> I thought you were about to sort of say, but all those people that are sitting in Ukraine at the moment, uh, you know, I mean, to be honest, it's a first world problem. There just wasn't the heating on the bus. It was my, it was minus one when we got on. The bus oh, from Perth to Glasgow, and it was minus one probably in the bus. It felt colder. Um, you know, people were praying that we stopped at Stirling because actually you could get out to warm up a bit. Um, and of course, buses these days have got lots of older people like me that have got their bus pass and then mm-hmm. younger people. And of course, as anybody with bairns or step, you know, or, or grandchildren will, of an age will know, uh, it is it is part of being young that you don't put on enough stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. So these these poor bairns. I mean, I was rummaging around trying to find a spare bonnet and everything, but they were there with not enough, you know, not enough clothes on, thinking they would pop into an overheated bus. My God, there had been people on there from Aberdeen in minus one all the way down. And the thing was, at the end of it, um, you know, I, I kind of looked at the driver and he must have been on a different setting because he was actually hadn't got even his jacket on. But I said to him, can you know, can you do something about this? Because, you know, you can't take this out again and have another set of people freezing for four hours all the way up. And he just sort of looked at me like, what world do you live in, woman? You know, this bus and me will go out because there is no other one. Yeah. And he didn't say that. But, you know, quite obviously that was the size of it. And the brownie in me or blooming girl guide was still thinking, but this shouldn't happen, you know. And um, so I went up to the CityLink office and basically said to them, you know, what had happened. And the guy just looked at me and said, all I do is sell the tickets. And I just thought at this point, OK. <laughs> yeah. Then I got the train actually out to uh, Guruk from um, from Glasgow Central. And the, the, the carriage that had the, you know, the, the, the toilets in it was absolutely minging. I mean, not just marginal, just a wave of it. It had, you know, there'd been a bad experience in that carriage. And people were going into it going, Jesus, and kind of walking out and walking around it. So when the guard came through, I, I said to him, that is a honking carriage there. You know, I mean, is there anything you can do about it? Nothing. I just sell the tickets. And, you know, I just... There's days where you just, you know, your heart sinks and you just begin to think, does anything actually work here? You know, everything feels kind of like it 
the ferry worked. You've seen better days, but I mean, at least it was going and it was kind of, I couldn't say it was utterly clean, but, you know, there's the next thing. Stuff's just coming in and going out. And it's not, I'm not, this is not a criticism of anyone working in that because, you know, my my heart went out to that driver of the bus, particularly, who just, you know, has learned clearly that there's no point in, I mean, you know, in, in trying to complain about anything, that there's only enough thing for him to go up and down that road in a freezing bus and it'll have to wait till the end of the day and maybe it'll get service then. Maybe I do CityLink a discredit, but nobody gave a toss. And it could have been a bad day. You know, there's some days that, that and in the midst of it, mostly people are cheery. You know, the guard who wasn't able to do anything about it, I was so kind of, you know, dozy. I had a bag with books to take to Dunoon and I'd actually got off the train and left it on the train. And I was almost at the ferry when I realised I hadn't got it and thought, no, <laughs> I just got that far. And basically ran around. And here he was coming after me, you know, yeah. with the bag. Yeah. So it's like people, as ever with everything, people are trying their best to, to you know, make systems work. But it just strikes me there's like a colossal underfunding here that, yeah, you hardly know how to embark on the conversation about that because, you know, you're stuck with the framing of there has to be a balanced budget for the Scottish government. Um, you know, there's already the prospect of massive cuts. We had comments this morning from Paul Gray, who was a civil servant yeah. back in the day, saying that the health service is about to fall over and you need to consider paying, which is a comment that... Um, was made, you know, back in the day by Joanne Lamont, you know, about contributions towards systems, which pretty much ended her period as Labour leader. Uh, and yet we we can't, we're not having, you know, we're not having conversations about how systems work. Uh, perhaps they're happening in the Scottish Parliament. I, I say fully that I'm not there enough to know what day in, day out minute discussion is going on. But somehow the public's not kind of aware of people beginning to grapple with, you know, big things. You just get the outcome of a particular policy that, you know, that nobody nobody likes HPMAs or whatever. And then that whole area, because, I mean, we've still got problems with marine conservation. You know, they haven't gone away just because yeah. someone whacked that policy. And it feels a bit to me like, you know, we we need to get beyond the, the, the you know, the the, the the incoming tide, you know, we need to get to the stage where we're beginning to visualise what pro better policies there would be. So, for example, um, on the thing, the Paul Gray NHS stuff, and I know this is I've mentioned this before and I know it shocks people. But, for example, I think it's true that all the Nordic countries place a small charge to see the doctor. And um, that is about £10. Um, it's free if you're on, you know, if you're on your uppers and there's uh, if you're if you're a kind of, you know, chronically sick person, you you there's a limit which you reach quite quickly. Um, if you keep, you know, if you need to keep seeing the doctor, then, you know, it's free after a certain point. You can only go into A&E if you are referred by a GP. You can't walk in in Norway. All these countries have got ways to try to kind of just place a bit of a limit without going to a, a fully kind of it's nowhere near the full cost or anything. It's not an insurance system. It's not fully private. In Norway, it's illegal to make a profit out of education. So there's a different bundle of approaches to how you deal with the health service. And I would just like 
my knowledge of it is is limited to the small periods of time on top of everything else when I've waltzed around and heard from people how their health services work. But I would love somebody to just go and case specifically how any of that works and whether it makes a substantial difference. Bear in mind, these guys are on higher salaries, all of them. There is much less of an income gap in all of them. So, you know, it's hard sometimes to compare other systems. But, you know, it's it's time it's time we start to look at, at some of the way that we're working and visualize if we had control of all the levers, how would we exactly. be running our public services differently? Yeah, I mean, it's one it's one of those things that, uh, again, and, and I know you've heard it before, folks, but a citizens' assembly that would actually sit down and look at what are the alternatives, yes. what are the ways to yes, do it. Absolutely. Well, let's actually discuss take, it. Let's get experts and, and take the evidence. Yeah, yep. and well, Unison's response to to Paul Gray was that they because he talked generally about structure, and they said, well, look, if you actually funded it properly, and you you look at the the underfunding that's taking place within the framework of health and social care inflation as opposed to general inflation it's been con- chronically underfunded but that does not go to the root of there could be systemic issues i'm sure there are but again i'm not an expert they should be teased out uh systemic issues in terms of the structure and organization but talking about structure constantly is a difficulty plus the fact we actually go to the nordics what they do is they operate a far more progressive taxation system do they not and they those who are better off and those who own land etc are taxed you know yeah they are, they are but that's still not you know of course i mean i think everybody by now will have have kind of got that and that is not absolutely not nothing if somebody would just sit and again if i had four of me sitting here and just look at the proportions spent on health in different countries. I'm pretty sure we're still near the bottom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that and Unison are quite right in that respect. You start kind of narking about stuff, which is basically solved by by having greater expenditure. But, you know, but still it's it's worth having looks at just different ways of running health yeah. systems that produce better results. And of course, some of that, the the worst that happens is that you come back with a realization that, again, for example, with the the Norwegians, um, they they will get prescribed walking, um, you know, all sorts of Mm -hmm. of kind of holistic, whatever it is, before they get medicine a lot of the time. And then I was thinking this morning as well, when I was up in Inverness, was it last week? somebody said to me that the system that I've described before that's been deployed in Iceland for the last 25 years is called Planet Youth. That's the one where all the kids get basically sport after school in clubs organised pretty much every day of the week, have been doing it for 25 years and it's transformed the behaviour yeah. of and, and health actually of a generation now. It's part of the reason that the Icelanders, men and women, qualified for the World Cup despite being what, 350,000 mm. people uh, two World Cups ago. Um, apparently, there are five schools in, in the Highlands um, just around Inverness that are piloting this Planet Youth system. So, you know, the, the worst that happens when you start to look at other countries, I find, is you're not going to find many bits of low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, the baby box was one of them. But you're going to get your eye taken to the other stuff and the other stuff, for example, proper kindergarten care, you know, <laughs> I'm saying yeah. this to the granddad, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're the full time, you know, you do the big, big heavy lifting part. But, you know, other countries start the thing off and frame it all properly by putting s- sort of so much money into kindergarten care right from the outset. 
we're kind of halfway along some of these policy shifts in that the SNP and Green Conference two years ago, was it, or last year, you know, voted to change the, the school starting age to six, mm-hmm. which would be revolutionary, uh, not just because it would finally put us in line with all the academic research in the entire world about when kids are best starting formal school, but also because we would rejoin Europe. Because the rest of Europe, apart from puzzlingly enough, the Netherlands, everybody else Mm. starts school at six and seven. And in that respect, we would be essentially leaving the mindset. You know, there's a most people listening to this are very keen to leave the the uh, leave Britain kind of in a formal constitutional political way. (laughs) But the beginning of that is to change your mindset. And, and actually act in accordance, not with what's I've been and what's convenient and what suits the vested interests and, you know, whatever, but act in accordance with what works for kids. Number one, just number one, and is supported by all the academic evidence. So that's the way most of our, you know, on a good day, most of our neighbours work. And that's what, what we should be doing to join them. So. I think as well, it would be very uplifting for people who just get a never ending stream of the small things that don't work anymore to have a a really kind of a really kind of big, bold, funky kind of statement of this is where we're going with stuff, even if it's and we can't get there because we're losing that tranche of money. There's the bit that's missing for this. I know that the government will come on and say you've got 100,000, 600 and something or other hours that's not, you know, that doesn't sink in the same as saying our aim is to start school at six, like 82% of the world's countries, including all of the people, all of the countries at the top of the piece of charts. Our aim is to do that. It'll cost this amount. We're kind of a quarter of the way, half the way to it, you know, but this is the strategy and we're doing it because the only thing that matters here is putting our kids first and then we work our way through this to, to work with the evidence you know, to 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 create a better country. Yeah, I mean, but and it is that thing. I think the the, the narrative, Leslie, is, is absolutely essential to this of saying, if actually stressing, this is what we this is what we are doing. This is what we could do. There is a strategy. There is a plan, and it fits into uh, taking taking uh, families and children out of poverty. This is the way we would organise work. It is a, a holistic approach. And and just note on anecdotally um, that there are a significant number of parents in the Newport and Wormit area who've already decided their kids aren't going to school with their six. You know, mm-hmm. so that's yeah. it's actually happening. But they're able to do that within the framework of a middle class area and having sufficient knowledge and ability to be able to do that and have childcare on hand from, you know, from parents and grandparents and, and, and the ability to pay for childcare as well. So that all comes into it, that, that delay till six. Yeah. So that that's and, being done. And that bit, you know, having now watched audiences watching the Denmark film about three times, <clears throat> um, there's a bit in it where the, a young teacher whose child is is at the kindergarten that costs a third of what it costs here for a full time place. Um, she She's kind of talking about how happy she is to pay 37 percent in tax, partly because it gives her these facilities, a proper health service. Mm-hmm. That was the second thing she mentioned. But the third thing was because it helps to subsidise people who would find it hard to have their kids in that kindergarten. And actually, the thing that really moves people is how often in all these interviews 
um, about different subjects, people will absolutely just volunteer that the important thing is solidarity and, and keeping everybody, you know, that their contributions mean that somebody who's currently finding it hard will be able to be included. And, you know, you, you find that once, twice, maybe every interview. Yeah. So I think that's where the Scots are at. But we're not, you know, it's not sitting in, we're not seeing it in the way we operate. And they're being encouraged, they're being told that their contribution is achieving this, this, this and this. They've got to be or they're, they're a much smarter set of people than we are, which is also possible <laughs> because they just understand intuitively that's what this is all about. But still, um, if people are curious, by the way, about the Denmark film, um, I've been trying to myself uh, get it into cinemas and places around Scotland, which is, I'll tell you, no easy task. Um, but I think I've just about got quite a number of screenings now for January and February. So the object is to have those screenings. And at the end of that, the film will go online because a lot of cinemas are not that keen on yeah. putting something on when mm. they feel people could just have watched it already. So I know that's not the way we did the previous films, but, you know, it's it's more of. Yeah. So this is the way we're doing it this time. So yeah. I'm afraid you, you'll have to either get your butt along to one of the 12, I think, at the moment, screenings around the place um, or wait until probably early March and the thing will be online. So there we are. Yeah. The thing that occurred to me when we were, uh, when we were talking about. About the, the health and social care system and uh, progress saying it was a restructuring, etc. And it just immediately sprang to mind uh, the the, uh, the agreement, the secret agreement, the four point agreement that uh, Rishi Sunak had, had reached with Suella Bravan when order to secure her support for his uh, leadership bid. And I mean, it was various things in it, but it, it's, it started uh, because what they're talking about now is raising the agreed threshold. That was the income threshold that, Barno, uh, that Braverman suggested was from 26,000 to 40,000 pounds a year would be the income threshold for, for UK migrants. And that's led to a, a battle going between the Home Office, who, who are tough, who want to cut, who are dead set on cutting the numbers of foreign health and social care staff and the health and social care. Uh, department in the UK government saying, no, 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 we can't do this because we depend utterly on foreign nationals to come and work in our health and, health and social care system. Um, the, the, and that was the one that got to me there. The other aspect of it as well is that they, they're, they're talking about um, ending extended visas for graduates and limiting the number of family members people can bring. And I don't know. I had a I had a quick look at it, and it really the dependence is is very 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 tight anyway. If you're on a student visa, you have to be in a postgrad to bring a dependent in. And what's a dependent? It's either your spouse, a non-married civil partner, under eighteen kids, even if they're born here, and over eighteens, if they were here before they were. 18. That's all you can get here. And they're talking about restricting it. And Barnock said, we've got to get tougher. I really am not actually sure how much tougher you can actually get. Oh, and the kicker for me was, this is the belter. They were going to restrict the number of student uh, visas to give, uh, uh, prioritising certain universities. And this is a little quiz for you, uh, Leslie. Can you guess the two Scottish universities that they're going to prioritise? Uh, St Andrews and Edinburgh. Nearly right. St Andrews are going to be bailing about this. They're not in it. It's Edinburgh and Glasgow. 
Mm. And uh, there's 24 of them in the Russell group. And you've got your usual suspects there, Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, Queens, Warwick, etc. So again, if there's ever an example of a structuring in terms of class, in terms of perspective, in terms of the uh, in terms of the, the the perception of the of the regions and the nations in the United Kingdom, and uh, how much worth you will actually be to the system is forty thousand pounds a year. And Badnock says we're going to have to get tougher. So, what ends? What's going to be happening there? And the the other thing, just just while they're at it, is that I mean, it's it's kind of been observed that basically uh, a lot of the taking taking students in, and just I think it was from memory. There was what I just haven't got that figure in front of me. I've got it in my head. It's 1.2 million people who came into Britain last year and a quarter of them came from India. Another quarter mm-hmm. came from China and Nigeria combined. And the bulk of them were students and legal migrants. Yeah. So when you come to the kind of histrionics about, I mean, the boat situation is appalling, you know, because of the danger to people in it. But the absence of legal routes is kind of pretty integral to that. But here, meanwhile, back at the fort, there's all of this quietly going on on the side, which, you know, suddenly this the spotlight has kind of swung around onto that. But the problem as well is that if you clamp down on these student visas, it's it, it kind of brings income into British universities who use those fees to cross subsidise UK yeah. students. So it's kind of like not only is there the this kind of interconnectedness with the number of people, migrants coming here to do um, care and all the other jobs that we've mentioned, which if you're going to clamp down on that and we haven't got, you know, European free movement. So, you know, there's a bit of a problem there. You're also going to disentangle this kind of the sort of funding structure, essentially, for higher education. So it's not an easy it's totally not an easy one, but it's quite astonishing, you know, to have people who are just quite so completely inept at the centre of it. I mean, people Mm -hmm. will say we were very unlucky to have someone as basically whatever you want to do, you know, an adjective you want to insert here, stupid, devious, whatever, as Boris Johnson in charge at a time like COVID because it killed people fundamentally. But now we've got, I mean, there's a fantastic piece actually in The Guardian today about dear old James Cleverly written by John Crace, which is which is absolutely, you know, it's hilarious in a sort of utterly grim way. He kind of refers to him as Jimmy D, which is uh, fine. Also, that's <laughs> Jimmy Dimley, by the way, as opposed to James Cleverly. Um, but he's basically uh, going on the bit when he was in Parliament having to explain this Supreme Court judgment business. Um, and he had three delusional MPs from the Tory backbenches who, to quote John Crace, wanted reassurances that reality could be whatever they wanted it to be. So could the government say that Rwanda didn't kill refugees so the UK could then ignore international legal obligations? This is the brilliant bit here. Dimly coughed politely. He hadn't quite appreciated just how mad the Tories were. And like this is the size of it. You're having to. We we had a conversation before we started today about what we should discuss. Yeah. And I mean, it's absolutely overwhelming. There's also someone who got in touch with me and I apologize because people are getting in touch on Twitter messages, on email, one of two different emails on Messenger and whatever. And I couldn't find the thing that they said, we're waiting for you to discuss this absolutely ludicrous situation on today's podcast. And I'm sorry, I can't even remember what it was. 
But that's because the whack rate of utterly ludicrous stuff has risen so so fast that you, you, you your brain just can't cope with the level of utter non nonsense is just kind of it's not it's just appalling governance that's coming out of out of Westminster and then I mean that's the serious bit is this you know that there is absolutely no strategy for migration and as your man Chris points out Jimmy D got off lightly because no one on either side of the house wants to raise migration yet again Brexit is the truth that cannot be told by Tory or Labour just as well because no one in government has a clue what to do about migration so that's kind of like migration. And then what do we focus on instead? The fact, I mean, in a funny kind of way, he was lucky he did this because there was a point of order just after he'd gone through that whole thing by Alex Cunningham um, and then uh, cleverly basically uh, called his Stockton constituency a shithole and has now tried to claim that what he said was that Cunningham was a shit MP. You know, that'll be all right then. Um and what happens is, first of all, that is a terrible affront to, you know, it, it just tells you how the Tories think and operate. But it, it actually distracts us from the very serious freaking stuff that's that's going on at the back of this, because it's almost like our minds can't take in the enormity of the failure of practically every system of governance that Westminster is responsible for. Yeah, absolutely. And again, if anyone was has been watching the COVID inquiry, uh, which is focusing just now on political governance and how that, how that was organised, that's module two, and it's not tackled Scotland yet. There have been questions asked about the relationship between uh, UK government decisions and uh, Scottish government decisions during COVID. And remember at that point, I'm sure people listening to the podcast remember, the, the great clamour was why was Scotland doing things before England, why was Scotland doing things after England and why what, was it just because to be uh, just to be different deliberately you know, just that for to make political points, but what's coming through entirely here is it was an absolute arrant shambles, and key to this and I'm really looking forward to Rishi Sunak coming in, uh, to be asked about his Eat Out to Help Out scheme which he claimed at that point had been okayed by the science, and it turns out he did not run it past any of the scientific advisors at all before operating the scheme. And the second thing that's come out, the scientific advisors strongly feel that this we're just following the science was a way for the politicians to get themselves off the hook in terms of the decisions they made. But we're just following the science. They say, well, you're not actually. And it was an absolute shambles. And, and even in terms of before we get too precious about Scotland, we discover that Sadiq Khan, uh, when London was the epicentre mm-hmm. The epicentre of the epidemic of the pandemic was being completely ignored and shut out of discussions. And then when it shifted to to the north of England, which came came later, Andy Burnham was completely excluded. He, in fact, he was saying he was actually getting far more information out of fellow city mayors around the world than he was actually getting from the UK government. And there were promised meetings, there were promised consultations, and announcements were just being made. So it was again that whole structural element of the total centralisation of incompetence. And actually Burnham suggests that Manchester was punished for yes. his, the stand he took because they had had a, a lockdown, which I think neighbouring Lancashire didn't have because, quote, uh, Lancashire was more whatever it was compliant or, you know, yeah. able to. I mean, and this is the thing. I, I'm, I'm beginning to think now that because um, 
you know, the stuff that has been revealed within the COVID inquiry already about governance by people who are currently in government at Westminster would have been enough to sink a Scottish government. Yeah. Ten times over, you know, the sort of basically let them eat cake, let them die kind of, you know, stuff from from Boris Johnson and 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 Rishi Sunak just nodding in the background, you know, like the weakling, essentially, that he is in, in kind of political or human terms is is pretty shocking. And it goes on. I, I mean, there's there's a sto- the story running at the moment that the National Crime Agency is currently in, in questioning Matt Hancock and Michael Gove over Michelle Moon's PPE mm-hmm. contract at blooming long last. Um, and this is a sto- this is a stunner, basically, because they all have denied any involvement with anything. Michelle Moen has has apparently this month acknowledged for the first time that she was involved with the company that got these PPE contracts worth 200 million quid during the pandemic. Now, just while we're at it, the Department of Health and Social Care is taking legal action for the full return of that money because it paid millions for unused surgical gowns that MedPro supplied under a contract with the government claiming they were unsafe for use in the NHS in the end. Now, you know, everybody's, I think, north of the border has had a good look at this sort of Michelle Moen situation with this. But Moen's husband, also a chap called Barrowman, has also finally acknowledged that he was involved in this deal and that he, in fact, chaired the operation to supply the equipment. So this is as mucky as you want to come. But in the piece that I was reading, uh, you know, there's there's a statement in the midst of all this. It was. Hancock as former health secretary and Gove, who was the cabinet office minister at the time, uh, the crime agency investigators are trying to understand how and why the contracts were awarded to a company that had never done PPE equipment and whether any criminal laws were broken. Right, you're thinking we're going to get somewhere here finally, aren't we? Next sentence. Investigators do not suspect suspect either senior politician of wrongdoing. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, where are we with this? Because what what actually is the point? I mean, sure, it would be kind of quite something if they actually got the stage of discovering that Michelle Moen and her man basically swindled the taxpayer at a critical time and perhaps contributed to the lack of safety in care homes and hospitals such that people, sorry to sound hysterical, but died. Yeah. But... You know, where again are we with people pinning this to the guys who decided to have fast lanes, who decided to have we've got the crony contracts thing? Do these guys constantly just get away scot free? And I wonder with the COVID inquiry and all the rest of this, I mean, when we're talking about cleverly talking about Stockton being a, you know, shithole, this is the same guy who described the Rwanda policy as batshit. You know, you're beginning to get the style of this guy. He doesn't kind of zip it particularly well. So that's who you've got in charge of this. But it all seems to just, you know, it just seems to slip off their back, perhaps because people have priced in that they're toast anyway. So just knock yourselves out, guys. Say what you want. But, um, you know, part of me wonders if the Scottish media, especially on the COVID inquiry, have sort of decided that essentially it's dealing with the English stuff at the moment and it comes on on the English, you know, the network, whatever you want to call it, news, so that there's no point doing it again. And so you get these huge gobsmacking scandals coming out from Westminster, 
with basically no coverage here, almost mm. at all. Whereas massive coverage, day after day coverage and forensic analysis of the Michael Matheson laptop situation, you know, um, and, and not just in the media. Uh, I mean, First Minister's questions last week. Yeah, I was in doing the BBC commentary on that. And uh, it was totally astonishing, actually, because you, you would have assumed that one of Douglas Ross or Anna Sarwar, because the, the Grangemouth announcement uh, by Petrio Enios had come the, the previous night, you know, at 8 p.m. or something the previous night. So everybody, you know, I would have thought everybody was talking about it. The the kind of implications for Scotland, people are trying to think through whether that obviously at a time of transition, you're going to get to a stage where a lot of assets are essentially stranded. And it could be that, I mean, what, uh, you know, what's being claimed by by the boss of Ineos is that they've got 40 percent less um, oil coming into them. And, you know, they've they're partly owned by the Chinese, the the the, the outfit. Um, there's bigger fish to fry across the world. You know, we're just, this just doesn't merit their attention. Now, you'd have to say that, um, I've suddenly forgotten his name, actually. Ineos man. Oh, God. Okay, he's right, bidding so, to buy Manchester United. Oh, I, Jim. Jim, Jim. Jim. I know we've got it's, to Jim. Jim. Oh, so, Jim. Jim, anyway, you know, <laughs> he has also has tried his hand with this a couple of times when, you know, there was uh, when he, he made a big bid to for fracking, people might remember, to, to try and expand fracking and, in fact, do fracking right around the, the kind of area that, that his, his Grangemouth on the Firth of Forth and was, you know, smacked down on that one. Um, he's he's had a lot of, you know, if you don't do this, we're going to flounce off kind of moments. So it's hard to know whether this is another one of those or or where we are with it. But for crying in a bucket, you'd think here's a parliament that's having to consider the fact that the only refinery in Scotland is going to be closed, according to him, in a year. Do you think that might be important enough to discuss? But no, both Douglas Ross and Anna Sarwar majored on a kind of an attempted timeline thing with Michael Matheson to prove that he basically lied um, about who'd been using his laptop when he knew who'd been using his laptop. And each time um, Hamza Youssef would get up and say, aye, the guy's made some mistakes. You know, he's admitted that. That's where we're at. And he's, you know, he's now, this Mm -hmm. is now being looked at by the, the, uh, the corporate body of the parliament. So, you know, this will, this has now is, is kind of on a train to be analyzed and dealt with and everything. So we don't need you guys Obviously, let's not be naive in the political sense. There's a kind of weakness there. And these guys are just pummeling in to try to apply more pain. But hello, you know, as far as the rest of Scotland's concerned, you spent each of you, you spent, this is Douglas Ross and Anna Sarwar, you spent probably about 10 minutes each, four or five precious questions you wasted on something we already know, you know, which is the problem with Michael Matheson instead of a big strategic issue about where we're going, because that's what your questions allow you to do. You've got a set of four or five questions. It lets you go back and forwards. It's the only thing that the public generally, you know, even get a snapshot of. That's what the damn session is for. So I was so annoyed. actually. <laughs> I could hardly 
focus basically on it. Um, and yet that's the game playing yeah. that that focuses minds in the parliament and the attention of intelligent people who are parliamentary correspondents. They all end up. And I was watching it scurrying around trying to get, you know, exactly the, te the text of what the reference to the corporate body had been and what time it was released and what then would be the next thing on that. We haven't got time for all of this. And, of course, somebody might say, well, that's why Matheson should have got his jotters, because that is what inevitably happens. You know, if you if you have a weak minister um, who continues in post. But, you know, that this is the same parliament that managed to punch. I'm, I'm not even I'm not even using that analogy. Actually, punching anything is just a bad analogy, mm -hmm. which managed to excel actually in the Gaza debate where everybody just buried yeah. all this nonsense and was able to just, you know, all credit to Anna Sarwar managing to stick with the line he believed in about a ceasefire instead of being bullied by Keir Starmer. Good. But that's what you can do. See, it can be done. And then we slip right back into this just, you know, blooming dressage event when what we need is a proper investigation that they are charged with doing. That's the reason they get money as the official opposition. So, yeah, it was extremely poor. Yeah. And if you think the frenzy about the, the laptop and the boys, well, I presume it was the boys that didn't use the laptop. It was the hot spot and linked to it. Just wait if and until uh, the Alex, Alex Salmon case for uh, Malf misfeasance, sorry, in public office gets to court. And the, the witnesses that will be called there, which is likely to be Nicholas Sturgeon, Leslie Evans, possibly the first two women complainants. And that's that's what's coming down the line. But it's a it's an odd one. I mean, we've got to talk about it. I mean, but before I get started on this, I know it's taken right up to virtually the limit of the, the, the time limit in order to bring this this case forward after the investigation held that uh, there was a there were significant errors uh, made in the, the Scottish government investigation into the two cases of, of sexual harassment. Uh, but uh, what I actually found at that point was more cock up than anything else was that the, the HR person who was charged with actually investigating the, the complaints didn't actually follow the rule book for investigating complaints of, of that kind. So the, the, the Scottish government ceded this and therefore lost it. Um, but the, the next one that, that, that Sam is taking it forward is the, the fact that it's this is now he's, he's claiming he's got these almost it's, it's malice or uh, there, these were malicious uh, complaints and it was there were there was there was significant malice in terms of the, the way that it was carried out. And he's called it a day of reckoning where the deliberate, prolonged, malicious and concerted effort amongst a range of individuals in the Scottish government, the SNP, to damage my reputation, even to the extent of having me imprisoned. So that's what he's got to prove. And it doesn't depend on the fact of the first bit, which was cock up, not conspiracy. But I'm just going through my head. I know the time limit was up. I cannot figure out why, in God's name, other than revenge, Alex Salmon would bring this up at this point, where I think it had just subsumed into the background for the vast majority of people in terms of that's it done, dusted. Yeah, I I don't, you know, who knows? I've spoken to some people who say 
he, I mean, he's. I think he's suing for three million quid, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's maybe the reason uh, then. I, I myself am still a bit puzzled in that. I think I thought that actually, you know, there was also a fuss about the fact that damages were awarded against the Scottish government, which would mean that I think I would have thought the Scottish government ended up having to pay his legal bill. But I could be wrong. So you know, but nonetheless. Well, this is apparently for the loss of earnings. He claims. Quite. I was just going to say he's presumably Sorry. saying that that like many people who find themselves on the wrong side of the earning, you know, spectrum, um, he could have expected to earn a lot more and now can't. Um, I, I don't know. Just as you say, and I mean, Andrew Tickell's piece in the National mm. is the best explanation That's of the whole pair. thing there. Really clear, clearly explained. Um, and it is exactly this, the difference between the two cases that this has got to prove intention, malice and all sorts of stuff. Um, that's as he as he says himself that proving that any government decision is actuated by malice is a very high legal bar and one that most claimants fail to reach. So I don't know if this is simply about if 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 Alex believes that he was essentially being stitched up by Nicola and and Leslie Evans, uh, you can quite see that that's an enormous thought and possibility mm-hmm. which would be very difficult to just chuck over your shoulder. Um, I'm not saying whether this is right or wrong, personally speaking, um, and I'm not making any comparisons, but I've had quite a number of bad experiences with people in life. And the, for me, the practice is simply to disengage yourself from it as quickly as possible, Absolutely. because it will suck you up, eat you up and spit you out. If you, you know, there's, of course, there's times that people have to make a stand very often by making a stand. They do something on behalf of other people who haven't got the money or capacity to actually do it themselves. But um, I'm not sh- I'm not at all sure that that's what's going to come out of this. And quite clearly, the timing of this case means that these, you know, the evidence that's given will be in the run up probably to a general election. Yep. Um, and unlike the evidence that's coming out of the COVID inquiry, which should be enough to just end the Conservatives in the entire country, this will get lots of coverage. It'll be all over front pages everywhere uh, in Scotland. So you've got to say Sir Alex is not a stupid man and he knows this will happen. That must be, therefore, part of his plan. And he's he's made, you know, he's he seems to have made a decision to essentially crush the SNP because that's what will happen. It's not possible to, you know, single out a past leader and a past civil servant and try to detach them completely from, you know, the day job now being done by um, Nicola's successor, by by Hamza Youssef. It will just be, you know, on the on the end of quite a number of sort of difficult stories. This one will probably just look like the tin lid. And of course, there will be stuff chucked in the other direction about Alex, which will be equally yuck. Um so it's not something I mean, you know, again, it, it just it's very hard for people who are sitting constantly being forced to try to choose between people who in their day one would have time for and respect for various bits of what they did, criticize various bits of what they did. And it's actually draining and horrible. It's literally dreadful to contemplate having a year full of this. In addition to the difficulties of just trying to keep a, you know, an even keel with the Scottish government, and then by the way, remember this old one: promote independence. You know. Yes. 
and run a country, you know. Yeah. Within the limited framework of the, the the devolution settlement, you know, it's it's again, and if people think I'm being I'm being naive on this, I've been going through a, an experience where accusations were made about me and processes were put in place, uh, where I was eventually cleared of everything that that that, that was said. I. I don't know if I even took a conscious decision. Maybe it's just my my nature. I went, that's hot. That's it mm-hmm. behind me. I can carry this with me or I can let it go. And I did. And I, 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 it just happened naturally. And so I know it's not, I'm not Alex Salmond and I know I'm not, not in that position, but within my personal life and my personal career, it was a significant time, which was appalling. And and I, I have to say, I, I let it go and... That's that's that that was just on it. So I wouldn't. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure that people will say that, you know, if the, the things that Alex are alleging are true, then that does relate to the performance of government, mm-hmm. which is a higher bar than any of the experiences that, that we'd have been through with yeah. people. I yeah. get, I'm get that's true, albeit with a past first minister. Uh, so that there is a public function to be had if the, any of this is true. But um, yeah, it's. It's it's up to him to decide whether or not. And again, if if money is an is an object in this to try to retrieve some of his lost income, you do kind of wonder because if if it has the low bar of thresh, uh, likelihood of success that's being described by almost every um, commentator, it's quite a risk for Alex to be pushing the boat out on this because he'll have to be. I presume he'll have to be financing the legals on this himself. You know, at, yeah. at the outset. So anyway, fuck ends. Yeah. You know, but there we are. Yeah. Well, but it's, again, the the point you made about elections, um, I I, I thought just it clicked in my. The, 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 sorry, when I was when I was thinking about this episode and the number of things that that, that happened, uh, for those of a certain generation, even older than well, yeah, much older than you, Leslie, and even older, but it sounded appalling. That's not what I meant at all. Was the fact there was a song by the Electric Prince called "I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night," and uh, I had too much to, to actually go through, but it was clicked in my brain there was the elections that took place in the Netherlands where we had Geert de Wilders. And I've got to say to this, what is it about far right from time immemorial, the dodgy haircuts they seem to have? <laughs> yeah, there is that, actually. I mean, going, you know, going right back to the 1930s with a man whose name he dare not mention, and Trump, this Egypt Wilders, the bam pot in Argentina was 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 chainsaw. Well, anyway, dodgy haircut time. <laughs> but what what it is is that the, the 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 thing that got me about that was that what what's happened in the Netherlands, and this is a it goes back to immigration. What's happened in the Netherlands and, and seems to be happening across Europe, where centre right parties have been quite happy to take on board the anti-immigrant stance of the far right parties such as the PPV, same in Germany with the AFD, the, the move to the right within the mainstream centre right, and they seem happy to go into coalition in certain places, and you've got Maloney in in, in Italy. Is the fact that when people that the centre right think, well, they won't vote they'll vote for us rather than these bampots, but people are actually making the decision that rather than going for the tribute act, they're actually going to go for the full fat version and vote for the far right. Mm. And the 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 other aspect of it is is that what we've actually got and it's a, it's an interesting one in in terms of the split in Ireland Lithuania or, and I'm going to hold my breath and say even in the UK with the Labour Party you've got parties of the left 
who seem to be on the comeback, whereas in other areas, the parties of the right are on are on the comeback. But what it goes down to is the fact they've got the European elections next year, and it will be interesting to see what happens in terms of the makeup of members of the European Parliament. Uh, you've also got the, the construction of the European Council, which is where the political heads of state get together and decide on the strategy and the direction of travel within which everything else operates within the European Union. So the shape of the European Union is up for grabs and I, I can't I can't figure out uh, whether it's going to go down the look what's happened in the Netherlands, look what's happened in Finland, or will it be look what's happening in Ireland, look what happened in Poland, where you have the forces of the centre left who uh, are coming to the fore. So it's uh, that Wilders. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> I mean, still, um, this it's, it's a d- difficult one because we've and we've been here before where there is a, a winner of an election in a proportional parliament, yes. which means that they haven't actually, you know, everybody thinks that automatically, right, that's him in as prime minister. He's not, though, because um, he needs, I think, two coalition partners yep. to form a majority. And so far, you know, the one of them, Mark Rutter's party, who was the outgoing prime minister, has said nah. Um, there's quite a few of the rest of them saying we can't take on board any of your stuff, like banning the Koran and mosques and stuff. You know, that's pretty much out for all these parties. So there's a lot of speculation. I mean, I'm seeing it in the FT here at the moment that um, he's actually said he's going to compromise on his hardline manifesto to convince other parties to back him as prime minister. And the bit that that seems to take the most, uh, you know, focus is all that stuff about the anti-Islamic kind of mm-hmm. positions. They look like they might have to just get dumped. Um, that's not going to stop the fact, you know, that still he obviously the the the, the support he got partly, you know, he's attributing it to too many asylum seekers, too few homes, insufficient purchasing power, poor health care. He could have been talking about Ireland. Yeah. Exactly. You know, all of that that mix there. We talked about this before, actually, with with a piece that Brian Wilson mentioned. We think it, it was last week, actually, mm-hmm. when he was talking about the, you know, the, the huge influx of people to Ireland and the difficulty then of if you haven't got your housing sorted out, by gum does it then become difficult because you've got more pressure. And then, of course, everybody starts looking at who gets the homes first and it's not fair. And, you know, it's all it's the, just the right conditions for producing the most horrible backlash. And of course, we that happened. And then, of course, there was a <laughs> there's been a well, another backlash to the backlash, actually, after the Dublin riots, um, when the far right absolutely weaponized that within minutes of the thing of the the attack on the bairns yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, the far right was on it like greased lightning, first of all, saying that five kids were dead, which was just wrong. And of course, this all just fires around the place so quickly. But I love the fact that the guy who actually had intervened, who is himself is yes. a Brazilian migrant, right? And there's a lovely bit of him, I can't remember whose report it just ended up with, a lovely cheery picture of him just standing there. This is a Brazilian migrant. I don't know if you noticed there was a crowdfunder put up to buy Absolutely. this guy a pint. And I mean, the last time I looked at it, it was 300,000 euros. So <laughs> it's one hell of a pint. And it seemed to sort of catalyze people in Ireland a bit, you know, in that in that the left or whatever you want to call it, progressive Irish citizens have had to kind of rouse themselves here because clearly there's something sitting in their midst 
which you just can't be complacent about. Um, so it, it's been a it's been an interesting period and, and a lot of you know reflection going on for the Irish now on what it was that allowed all that to march forward. One of the one of the other aspects of it that though those that uh, Joe Brawley, the the great uh, uh, Derry uh, Gaelic footballer, talked about this. He happened. He's a a KC and he happened to be there when it happened. He he, he saw it unfolding in front of he's his a, eyes. I know, he's a KC like a lawyer. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. a Gaelic footballer. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, right, okay, Renaissance so man par excellence. <laughs> right. Anyway, but what 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 the what he saw happening was and said that the, the, what took place was the the work that was done to save that child's life, the wee girl, the the, the work that was done there with CPR to to hold her there and to keep her alive until until the paramedics could get there. The second thing he talked about, which is utterly remarkable, that the man who carried out the attack was obviously severely injured and the mothers at that nursery stood around him to prevent people yes. getting to him. It was amazing. All of that was amazing, actually, because they also interviewed one of the mothers who said that, she, you know, she actually said, we're not animals here. And they, you know, she said the woman had actually surrounded the, the guy so there's an awful lot of, you know, whilst a lot of people will be very worried about what happened in Ireland, there's a lot of good instincts working yeah. there because you can't. That was a heat of the moment thing where that Brazilian lad went in and just acted in the heat of the moment. The women, you know, saw the mm-hmm. how this could escalate and just decided to put their bodies in the way of it. I mean, Jesus, just, you know, it's really very moving, actually, how that sort yeah. of got held by the citizenry of Ireland, you're tempted to make a wee connection with the fact that that's a fairly empowered citizenry, thanks to mm. the big bits of heavy lifting they've yeah, been and it's you know, bit, charged bit, with doing. But, you know, maybe yeah. it works both ways. These are and, people who are up for it. Yeah. And, and compare and contrast with uh, Paul Golding of Britain First, who is uh, a loyalist who now turns around and says, look, look, give Ireland back to the Irish, but not that bit of Ireland that... Uh, is British Paul, and he immediately leapt in there, immediately saying that Conor McGregor should organise a people's march to actually take back the country of Ireland for the Irish. But there has always been, I mean, it goes right back to the blue shirts uh, in the 1930s, there's always been a far right in in Ireland, um, but which has diminished and diminished. But again, when you actually have that situation where, as Brian Wilson and others have identified, and Sinn Féin have identified. Yeah, and that's why Sinn Féin are doing exactly. Yeah, exactly, that's, that's, that's what's happening. And uh, But again, the common humanity of it there and the bravery of that Brazilian guy who took off his motorcycle helmet and and got stuck in, and the, as you say, the, the bit about the mothers, that's what, that's mm-hmm. it. But again, and what Joe Broly talked about as well was seeing that child there, uh, lying there, and immediately, immediately, he saw what was going on in in Gaza. And he also saw what was going on in terms of seeing that, I mean, the four-year-old Bielassi, uh being released as a hostage back to, back to what's left of her family now. And I'm just going to make a personal point here. If anybody, if I, I will have no truck with anybody who tries to excuse anything that Hamas did. I understand the reason that it happened. I understand the conditions within the framework of the rise of Hamas took place, but their actions were totally inexcusable. Full stop. No, 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 no excuses for it. But and to see that wee girl going going back, and that's what he got. And the truce is is now 
thank God, been extended for another two days. Um, and you just hope that, that there is there is sufficient movement that, that might take place within the war cabinet, the Israeli war cabinet, and uh, the, the, the discussions that are taking place within and, and, and diplomatic areas with Qatar, etc. That this will this the truce will continue and continue and become a de facto ceasefire, despite the rhetoric that's coming out of Netanyahu, who's fighting for his political life. His political life, I believe, literally depends upon continuing the onslaught on Gaza and trying to dig himself out of the hole. The fact that he's held utterly responsible by the vast majority of his Israeli population for what happened in terms of the lack of security and the lack of progress on addressing the significant issues in Gaza and on the West Bank. But I think, I think that, amen to all of that. Um, but I mean, I think it's really, it's Joe Biden and the Americans now need to basically, and I'm sure will be behind the scenes now, focusing on what anybody thinks is a long term. I mean, Gary Robertson did a very good interview this morning, Good Morning Scotland, with an Israeli spokesperson. And he just kept asking him to describe what he thought could be a safe solution for the people in Gaza now, what a future solution mm-hmm. would look like. I mean, lots of interviewers are doing this and you've got to stay very calm because the contained rage of the Israeli speakers is powerful. Yeah. Um, but nobody can come up with, I mean, again, that person sort of said, well, obviously, you know, the Palestinians can run whatever they want, but the Israelis would have to be in control of defense. And you think, well, see, that, that's not so you can't do that. And, you know, the, 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 the focus will start to shift on what anybody thinks a kind of, uh, you know, solution to this could potentially look like. And I'm sure that the Americans are well, all reports suggest they're well ahead of anybody else thinking about that. And meantime, I mean, the, the, the again, I'm obviously hugely biased now, but Channel 4 News, again, has been doing yeah. excellent work. Porrick O'Brien has been there doing tremendous reports. And... Um, you know, he just pointed out yesterday that I think there was 120 Palestinians released and there was 120 Palestinians arrested. Yeah. The same number of people were arrested yesterday for, you know, stone throwing or whatever else it was that they were doing as were released in exchange for the hostages. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, and th- this is just appalling it's it's going on in the West Bank where, you know, just just watch what's happening there with so many of the um, Israeli Defence Force, obviously pretty much all of them now in Gaza. There's nobody policing these settled areas illegally occupied by Israelis and the settlers, by all accounts, are now taking the law into their own hands. Yes. Which is making life absolutely intolerable. Um even in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, um, Palestinians who had their people released were told not to have any celebrations for them at all and just had to comply. It, it's all these it's all these things that, you know, for years, the Palestinians have tried to describe what it's like living in the bits of Palestine that exist um, around Israel. And if unless you went there or spent a lot of time focusing on it, you couldn't kind of summon up in your mind what it was like. And everyone who's been to, to Gaza would come back with this vivid sort of, I just had no idea it was like this kind of, you know, experience, mm-hmm. which, again, they, they find it hard to convey to people who had no experience of that at all. 
I think we've all got a fair idea now, actually. You know, I think in, in all sorts of ways that really etch their way into consciousness, that's not abstract so strongly abstract historical detail, although I'm sure a lot of people will have gone and looked back now at history to see how we got here. But there's so many little moments now, the things that do stick in your mind, the horrible things that stick in your mind. Um, and you can begin to imagine now this life that is hardly really a life for people and think, you know, now that we've reached this point, you cannot just let this all get covered up and put back in the Absolutely. box again, all broken, all unmanageable, all terrible. It can, you know, it can. And I don't even want to use this phrase. I heard somebody using the only good thing that can come out of this. Nothing good is coming out of this. You know, you cannot put the 13,000 dead in Palestine and the 1,300 dead in Israel and have that, you know, oh, well, at least it kind of brought a solution it's just appalling. The point is, we cannot have got to here where we now know what we know. There's no excuse for any of us. That's the reason people are on the streets all over the place, because we I think I'm speaking for myself, perhaps. But you begin to realize the horror of this situation very, very graphically and, and are determined that if, if you know, Britain's uh, contribution to this matters, Absolutely hee-haw. I mean, that's obvious. That's where we are in international circles now. But we all still have to play our part through this one. In this respect, obviously, in the situation in Ukraine, which is just every time you think this couldn't get any more horrific, yeah. the snow, the rain, the kind of loss of electricity. And actually, unless I misheard the news at one point, a Russian set of people came to help evacuate Ukrainian folk from that were, you know, almost in danger of flooding. It's just that is also an appalling situation. And meanwhile, back at the fort, um, the COP28 summit that's getting underway oh, at the yeah. UAE has now been exposed as a front for the UAE and just while we're at it, Saudi Arabia, uh, to basically try to secure more oil deals while they're fronting up a, a conference about climate change yeah so it's kind of a safe effect and it's the sort of stuff that you know it's enough to make you just want to get the blankie and pull it right out of your head and basically not come out for about 100 years and yet you know there's been more difficult times in our history we've got to keep a focus i think most scots have got at least instincts that to direct them in in the right direction towards some kind of progressive solution, which is the only one that will ever work for this country. Um, and despite ev everything and the gloom all around, sometimes you just have to think that we can't solve everything in one go, but we can start to just call things out for what they are clearly and without fear and, you know, move forward collectively with uh, with the solutions that the bulk of Scots support. Yeah. And I mean, and I, you know, I, I usually, uh, you know, I like to finish on on a light note. I really, I really can't because I mean, uh, you know, it's that phrase that Tacitus used, which is the they created a desert and they called it peace, and that's not the peace that the citizens of Palestine and the citizens of Israel deserve. There, there, there has to be a solution. And I, I keep I keep hoping that the light is at the end of the tunnel is the fact that this truce will continue to be extended and de facto there will be a moment when it becomes 
a ceasefire and we do not go back to the slaughter that we saw. And if we know anything from experience, the greatest recruitment tool for the provisional IRA was what happened on Bloody Sunday and Ballymurphy. We know that if there are, there are, there's a destruction of human rights, that is the breeding ground for the next generation and for the hatred and the revenge on both sides to continue. So, fingers crossed, hopeful there will be a continuing truce and there will be a ceasefire. We'll see you next week, Johnson.